Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and chapter number 42 in Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn in it to page 33, and you would be at Genesis 42. And of all the mornings, you want to have a Bible in your hand. This is going to be a good morning to do that, because we're going to look at a whole slew of verses, and we won't really be putting them up on the screen. So I encourage you to grab a Bible and turn to Genesis 42. Recently, I read a very fascinating story that comes out of New York City in the 1880s. There was this businessman named Hyman Sarner, and he owned some lots on 82nd Street in New York City. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to build apartments on those lots. And his lots extended to within a few feet of Lexington Avenue. But what what was there was this very odd-shaped strip of land. It went 120, or rather 102 feet long, but it was only five feet wide all along Lexington Avenue, virtually a valueless piece of land. But uh, Sarner thought, you know what, I ought to look up who owns that. Maybe I could just buy that land when I build my apartments we would own all the way to the edge of the street. And so he researched it, and he found out that another wealthy businessman named Joseph Richardson, owned that virtually valueless strip of five-foot-wide land. And so he researched where he lived, and he actually went to Richardson's home. And Sarner offered Richardson, uh, in the 1880s, $1,000 for that five-foot strip of land, which is some $25,000-plus in today's value. Well, Richardson was insulted by this offer. He was incensed. He demanded that he get $5,000 for this virtually valueless five-foot strip of land, and he ended up slamming the door in Sarner's face. Well, Sarner said, you know what? I guess I'll just go ahead and I will build my apartment building anyway. And so he built a four-story apartment building, but as he built that building, he included windows in the building facing Lexington Avenue, because he's thinking in his own mind, nothing will ever be built in a five-foot-wide strip of land. Well, Richardson, who was 70 years old, got ticked off that he would build a building there and have windows facing Lexington Avenue. And so out of personal grudge and spite, he built a four-story building that was 102 feet long and five feet wide on the outside of the building. And he built eight apartments in there, and he vowed that he was going to live in one of those apartments. When he built that, of course, that little tiny skinny building blocked all the Lexington Avenue side windows of Sarner's building. We actually have a picture to show you what this looked like. The building on the, the left is the Sarner's building, and the little tiny thing that you see that's so skinny is what Richardson built. 
And, and you can imagine a building where the outside measurements were only five feet wide. The stairs were so narrow inside that you could hardly go up them. And all the furnishings in the building had to be specially made. In fact, the largest dining room table in that building measured 18 inches wide. And, and then, this is, this is comical, uh, one of the newspapers said, you know what, I want to I get a story on this building that Richardson built. And so he sent a newspaper reporter named Deacon Terry to get an interview, and Deacon Terry was a rather rotund guy. And when he went into the building and he was going to go up and interview Richardson in his apartment, uh, Deacon Terry got wedged in the narrow stairway. And, and someone was coming down from their apartment and they tried to push Deacon Terry back down the stairs. They couldn't budge the guy. Someone came up from below and tried to push Deacon Terry up the stairway. They couldn't budge the guy. He was stuck in the stairway, and the only way he ever got out is somehow being stuck. He managed to strip off all of his clothes, and semi-naked, he was able to move through the stairway. And that building that was built by Richardson became known in New York City as the Spite House built out of spite and built out of resentment and built out of revenge. And Mr. Richardson lived in the spite house for 14 years until he died at the age of 84. You know, when we have been mistreated by other people, part of us wants to erect a spite house. And part of us says, I'm going to live there. And the aim is, I want to pay them back for what they did to me. I want to get even for what they did for me. I want to get revenge for the hurt that they caused me. And the goal, just as it is with Richardson, was to make someone miserable who hurt us. The problem with that is that all that it ultimately accomplishes is that you spend your precious days confined to our spite house. We've been doing a series of messages we've entitled Hope Through Hardship Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And today in our study, we're going to come to the section where we find out that Joseph, despite the hardship that he went through, despite the cruel mistreatment he got at the hands of his brothers, despite the false accusation that came to him that ended up having him going to prison, We're going to see that Joseph refused to build and refused to live in a spite house. We're going to see that Joseph chose, as the title of today's message says, the freedom of forgiveness. Now today, as we look through this section of Genesis, we're going to be looking through what I believe is one of the most moving sections of Scripture. But before we get there, I want to make three quick observations, and we will revisit these observations at the end of our time. Here's the first quick observation. Number one, Joseph forgave even before his brothers asked for forgiveness. When we have resentment and bitterness, whether it's towards others or towards God, we need to understand that resentment and bitterness is emotional cancer. And cancer is not satisfied until it invades every facet of somebody's life. Second quick observation. Forgiveness granted does not mean trust is restored. 
Trust needs to be rebuilt by someone who mistreated another and needs to be proven over time. The third very quick observation I want to make is that forgiveness frees us to be used by God in surprising ways. Now, we're, I, I want you to do something very special in the next few moments we have together. I want you to do all that you can to climb into the context of what is a royal drama. We, I, I want you to imagine that you are an eyewitness in the events that we're going to look at from chapter 42 through chapter 50. We're going to look at a lot of different verses today. But this is a very emotional section. And, and, and as this reunion that's going to occur between Joseph and his brothers and his father unfolds, I'll tell you, you can get choked up. In fact, I have reflectively gone through this section several times over the last number of weeks. And I have to admit to you, every single time I get choked up. So if you, if you just climb into the context, you'll get a feel for what's really happening. And we have a lot of the story to cover. Well, it begins in chapter 42. In the first four verses, what happens is, remember there was a prediction of famine that was going to come. And famine comes in the land of Canaan to Jacob and his sons. And he says to his sons in verse 1, why are you all staring at one another? We've got to do something. Hey, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Let's go to that particular location and buy some grain from that place that we may live and not die. And so the 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But notice verse 4, Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, you know, from the beloved Rachel. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall Benjamin. So the 10 other brothers head to Egypt. Verse 5, so they come to buy grain because there was famine in the land of Canaan. And verse 6, Joseph was, of course, ruler over the land of Egypt. And he was the one who sold to everyone. And so Joseph's brothers come and they bow down to Joseph with their faces to the ground. Now remember, Joseph had already forgiven them. He'd already made the choice to trust in God's providence in his life to trust in God's presence in his life, to trust in God's promises in his life. He'd already forgiven them before he even saw them. But what we're going to see in this section is a series of tests that he gives his brothers. First, he wants to test them about their general attitude. How are they operating in life in the way that they think? Now, remember, they have not seen Joseph for 13 years. He was really a young teenager now he's a grown man. Not only that, but as they appear before Joseph, he is clean shaven, which those in the land of Canaan were not. He is wearing the royal robes of Egypt. He has a, an Egyptian hairdo. He has all the royal makeup on. And not only that, as they interact with him in chapter 42, we're going to see that he is talking to them in Egyptian, and then an interpreter interprets that into their language. So they have no idea, really, who they're standing before. Look at verse 7. It says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. He hadn't seen them for 13 years, but he knew who they were. And notice it says there that he spoke to them harshly. He said, where did you come from? And they said, we're from the land of Canaan to buy food. 
But notice it goes on to say that um, verse 9, he was remembering now those dreams that he had many years ago about them, and he says to them, I think you're spies, verse 9. You've come to check out the undefended parts of our land. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're your servants. We're just here to buy food. Verse 11, we're all sons of just one man. We're honest men. We're not spies. He says, verse 12, no, I think you've come to check out our land. And in verse 13, they say, wait, listen, we're just 12 brothers of one man in the land of Canaan. And the youngest brother, Benjamin, is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. See, they're referring there to what they thought happened to Joseph. And Joseph insists, verse 14, you are spies. See, part of what he's doing is he's testing them. He wants to find out if they're still devious in the way that they operate. Look at verse 15. By this you're going to be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother, which of course is referring to Benjamin, comes here. One of you can go back. The other nine need to stay here, confined, and you need to bring back that youngest brother because surely you are spies. Verse 17, so he put them all together in prison for three days. And I think part of the reason why he threw them into prison for three days is he wanted them to stew about all this a little bit. But I think also, remember, Joseph was taken off. He didn't know his brothers were going to show up. He was shocked. And I think he needed a little time to think. And the more he reflected over those three days, he said, wait a minute now. If I only send one of the ten back, it's probably going to crush my father's heart. And so he adjusts the plan in verse 18. He says, do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest, men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison. But the rest of you can take the grain back to your households, but you need to bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you will not die. Now, what happens at this point is they're getting this message. One has to stay here in prison. The nine of you go back, but you bring this youngest brother, Benjamin, back with you. And so they get this little huddle going in verse 21. And, and the brothers are just huddling. Remember, this guy's speaking to them in Egyptian. It's being translated to them. They have a little huddle, and they say, well, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, referring to Joseph. You can see they had all this concern about the past events. We saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we wouldn't listen. Therefore, now it's coming down on us. This distress has come upon us. And Reuben, who was the firstborn, said to the other brothers, didn't I tell you guys when we did this, don't sin against Joseph and you wouldn't listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. It's coming down upon us. But notice verse 23, they didn't know that Joseph understood what they were saying. He remembered, obviously, his home language. But what's Joseph thinking when he hears this little huddle going on? They feel guilt. They feel remorse. I had no idea what was going through their mind. They're not hard-hearted brothers like they were. So, verse 24, he turned away from them and he wept. It's the best he could have hoped for. Then after he composes himself in verse 24, he speaks to them and 
he took Simeon, that brother, from them, and of course bound him up to put him into prison. And then, verse 25, he gives orders to have all their bags that they brought filled with grain. And then he says, the money that they bought to buy the grain, restore every man's money into his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. And so, they return back to the land of Canaan. And I want you to notice verse 30. They go and they report to their father, Jacob, and they say, well, you know, we went there, the Lord of the land, this, this Egyptian guy spoke harshly with us, and he said, we were spies. And we said, no, 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 we're not spies at all. Verse 33, and he says, listen, the only way I'm gonna know you're honest, man, is to leave one of your brothers with me, and you can take grain back to your family. But bring your youngest brother to me, verse 34, that I may know you are not spies. So then they go on to say, it goes on to say in verse 35, as they were all opening and emptying their sacks, every man's original money to purchase it was in his sack. And when they and their father saw all this, they were dismayed. They thought, oh my gosh, something has happened. They're going to think we stole something. And Jacob says, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you're talking about taking Benjamin away from me. Verse 37, Reuben, the firstborn, says to his father, hey, look, Dad, if we take Benjamin back and we don't bring him back, you may take my two sons and put them to death if I don't bring him back to you. Leave him in my care, and I will return him to you. Just let me have a shot at it. But Jacob's response to this whole idea of Benjamin going back is, no, no, no. I don't want to send Benjamin back. Well, as they have um, brought the grain and they are eating the grain, guess what happens? Eventually, they run out of grain. And Jacob's talking now in chapter 43 about you've got to go back and get more grain. And basically what they say in the first five verses of, of chapter 43 is we can't go back without Benji. We cannot go back without Benjamin. We've got to take Benjamin back. And then notice in chapter 43, verse 8, Judah speaks up. And he says to Jacob, his father Israel, hey, look, send Benjamin with me that we may live and not die. And I myself, he says, this is very interesting, he says, I myself will be the guarantee for Benjamin, and you can hold me responsible, Dad, if I do not bring him back to you and send him before you. Let me bear the blame. Notice it goes on, then Jacob says to them in verse 11, well, if this must be so because we've got to eat, we can't have all of our families starved to death. He said, take some of the best products of the land in your bags, in our land, and carry them to this guy as a present and bring along a little balm, a little honey, some aromatic gum, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts, some almonds. Let's let him know that we really like him and we want to give these gifts to him. And then he says in verse 12, you need to take double the amount of money in your hand, the original money to buy the grain and more money to buy more grain. And okay, go ahead, verse 13, take your brother also, take Benjamin and arise and return to the man. Verse 14, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of this guy so that he will release to you your other brother, Simeon and Benjamin, 
As for me, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. And so they go back. And so now there's 10 other brothers, because Simeon's in jail, Benjamin included in the group, who show up. Now notice verse 16. They get back to Egypt, and it says there that Joseph saw Benjamin with him, and he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house. Now you have to understand We're not talking about some little apartment that Joseph had. Before when they had met him, they met them in official government area. This time, Joseph says, bring them to my house, which you have to know was a palace second only to that of Pharaoh. Bring them to my place. Personally, I want you to bring them there. And slay an animal and make ready, for these men are going to have lunch with me at noon. And so... The steward did as Joseph said, and he brought them to Joseph's house, his little palace. But notice the brothers were afraid because they were being actually brought to his house. And they said, well, this is because of the money that was in our sacks the first time, and we're being brought in because he wants to seek an occasion against us. He wants to fall upon us. He wants to take us and all of our stuff as slaves. So as they come near to Joseph's house, verse 19, and the house steward, they say, hey, hey, You know, the first time we came, verse 21, we came and and, and we were opening our sacks after we left and and everybody's money was in the mouth of his sack. All of our money was still there. Well, we've brought it back. And we've also, verse 22, brought down our money in our hand to buy new food, but we don't know who put the money back in our sacks. Verse 23, and so the steward says to, to them, be at ease, do not be afraid. This tells you something of Joseph's influence in his own steward. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I'm the one who put the money there. And then he brings Simeon out to them. Well, Joseph eventually comes home to the little palace that he had, verse 26. And when he did, they brought out all these presents that they brought before to to give to him, and they bowed before him on the ground. And notice verse 27, he asks them about their family. Is your old father, is he still alive, the one of whom you spoke? And they said, yes, yes, he's still alive. Verse 28, he is still alive. They bowed down in homage. Then notice verse 29, and as he lifted his eyes looking at them, he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother Rachel's other son, and he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And Joseph turned to Benjamin and said, may God be gracious to you, my son. First time he saw his brother in 13 years. And he gets emotional. Verse 30, Joseph hurried out at that point because he was deeply stirred over his brother Benjamin. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. How long, I don't know. That's how moving it was. He was just thinking about it. My dad is still alive. My closest brother is right there in the next room. Very emotional scene that happens. Well, eventually he composes himself. Verse 31, he washes his face and he comes out and he says, serve the meal. It's time to have lunch together. Now, what's interesting we learn from verses 32 to 34 
is there are three groups of people. There are three tables set up for lunch. What happened was that there was a table for Joseph. There was also a table for the 11 brothers. And then the Egyptians who ate with him had a table by themselves. Why is that? Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. We don't want to hang out from those people with those people from Canaan, not at all. And what was interesting is you have the three tables, you have Joseph's table, you have the brother's table, and you have the Egyptians eating over here. And what was interesting at the brother's table is that they had their places set in exact birth order from Reuben on down to Benjamin. And verse 33 says the brothers were looking at one another and think, how in the world did that happen? That's weird. How did he know our exact birth order? And in verse 34, Joseph steps up and he's the one who decides to serve his brothers. And he takes food from his own table and he brings it over to the brother's table. But notice verse 34, Benjamin's portion that he delivered was five times as much as any of the other brothers. But they feasted and they drank freely with him. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, when we come to chapter 44, it's really going to be the second major test. He's trying to figure out, can I trust these guys? He's, he's wondering, are you willing to defend Benjamin? You weren't willing to defend me. Are you willing to protect your father, Jacob? Do you have his desires above your own? You didn't with me. And so he proposes a little test. Chapter 44, verse 1, he tells his house steward, what I want you to do is I want you to fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, put everybody's money back again in the mouth of the sack, but here's what I want you to do differently. I want you to take my personal cup, the silver cup of his position, and I want you to put it in the mouth of the sack of the youngest brother, which of course was Benjamin. And of course, he did exactly as he was instructed. And so they begin to, to move on out to return back to the land of Canaan. In verse 4, when they hadn't gone very far off, Joseph says to his house steward, I, what I want you to do is I want you to go catch up with them. And when you catch up with them, I want you to say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? So that's exactly what happens. He catches up with them. And they say, why have you repaid evil for good? And they say to him, verse 7, what do you mean? I mean, we didn't do anything at all. We haven't done anything wrong. And, and if there's this missing cup, uh, if any one of us, verse 9, took it, let that person die. And we will all be slaves of this Egyptian leader. And so he says, hey, it'll be according to your words. We'll do it exactly as you stated. So each man, verse 11, lowers their sack to the ground. Each man opens his sack, and he searched. He started with the oldest, worked his way through all the 11 brothers, ending with the youngest. And of course, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, just as Joseph had told him to do it. Notice their response. They tear their clothes, which is just utter frustration. What are we going to do? We need to go back. We need to talk to this Egyptian leader. So they all return to face Joseph. And when they get back, verse 16, Judah says, what were you 
can we really say to you? I mean, we don't really have, we can't justify ourselves. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. In other words, we've done some bad things in the past. It's coming back to haunt us. Far be it from, 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 from us or any one of us to do this. Remember, remember the whole story he goes on to talk about down in verse 18 and following. Remember how you, you told us about and asked us about our father and we asked, us, asked about the brothers and the youngest brother. And notice in verse 20, he said, remember how we told you that we had an old father and he had a little child of his old age, but his brother, that would be Joseph again, is dead. So only this Benjamin is alone, left of his mother, and his father really, 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 really loves him. And he goes on basically to say, we can't, we can't go back without him. It's going to break our father's heart. It's just going to crush his soul if we do that. And then in verses 32 to 34, Judah makes an offer to Joseph. He said, listen, I want you to understand, sir, that I became surety for this young boy to my father. And I said to my father, if I do not bring him back to you, then you let me bear the blame. So here's the deal. Please let me, Judah, remain here. You can kill me if you need to. You can imprison me. But let the young boy go back with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father? If he is not with me, for I fear, verse 34, that the evil would overtake my father. What's Joseph thinking? These aren't the same brothers. The hearts of my brothers have been changed. And remember, Judah was an instigator of selling him off into slavery. And Judah has been changed. And Joseph is deeply stirred by all of this. Look at chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who were there. And he cried, have everyone go out of here. And he wept, verse 2, so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh, which was nearby, heard him wailing away. And he's crying because he's thinking, my brothers have truly changed. I have changed. I have grown. They too have grown. God has been at work in their hearts. And he's weeping, weeping over it all. And then eventually he composes himself. This is kind of an amazing story here. Verse 3. And then Joseph comes to his brothers and he says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And look at his brothers. They couldn't answer him because they were dismayed. It's like, what in the world is going on here? Verse four, Joseph says to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Look at verse seven. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here ultimately, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
And he says in verse 9, hurry, you need to go tell my father Jacob and say to them, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come to me, do not delay. Dad, you shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, Joseph, and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, and I will provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. You and your household and all that you have would be impoverished if you did not come to me. Behold, Dad, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. I'm still alive. Benjamin's still alive. And it is my mouth, Joseph, who is speaking to you. And you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father here. And then notice verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And Joseph kissed all his brothers. And he wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, guess what? Pharaoh finds out what's happening, that Joseph's brothers are there. Look at verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, what do you think his response was? It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, hey, tell this to your brothers. Load up everything that you need and go to the land of Canaan. And, and take your father and their households, and I want you to come to me here in Egypt. And listen to this. I'm going to give your family the best land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. And uh, take wagons right here, Egyptian wagons, and go get all your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. And, and verse 20, don't even concern with bringing your stuff because the best stuff of all the land of Egypt is yours. And so that's exactly what they did. Verse 21, Joseph gave them the Egyptian wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them all the provisions. He gave them changes of garments. But to Benjamin, ah, his closest brother, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And to his father, he sent 10 donkeys fully loaded with all the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, verse 24, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. You know, some people, some commentators think he said that to them very sternly. I personally think he said that to them with a smile, maybe a little wink, because he knew his brothers had changed. That was part of the past. Well, notice they show up, verse 26. They get back to see Jacob, and they say to Jacob, Joseph is alive, and Joseph is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Joseph was stunned, for he didn't believe him. And so they began to tell him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken, everything that happened, all the wagons, all the stuff. Then Israel says, verse 28, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46 is really a whole story about the move of the extended family to Egypt. We learn in verse 27 of 46 that there were 70 of them that went back. Look at, at verses 29 and 30 in chapter 46. 
They're coming back, and Joseph prepares his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel, and as soon as he appeared before him, Joseph fell on his neck and wept on his father's neck a long time. And then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and you are still alive. In chapter 47, they come back. Notice what Pharaoh says to Joseph again, reiterating what he'd said earlier. Verse 6, he says, the land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. They can live in the land of Goshen. If any of them are capable, they can work my own personal flocks. Can you imagine the reunion that they had? Can you imagine the reunion that they had? Look at verse 28. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of his life was 147 years. Verse 29, when the time came for Israel to die... He called his son Joseph and basically said to him, I have a favor. I don't want to be buried here. Will you take me back to the land of Canaan? Take me back to the land of Canaan. Chapter 50, turn over to chapter 50, verse 1. Jacob dies. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And then Pharaoh, again, speaks in verse 6. He says, go up, bury your father. Remember, he made you promise. So Joseph went to bury his father, and with Joseph went all the servants of Pharaoh. Pharaoh sent all of his servants and all the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt all went to see that Jacob would be buried. Then look at verse 15. Jacob's now buried, and the brothers get nervous again. You know, what if Joseph just forgave us because of dad? What if he's going to get us back now that dad's gone? So they send a message to Joseph saying, your father said this before he died. Would you please tell Joseph, verse 17, to forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And when they asked that of Joseph or said that to Joseph, he wept again. He wept before them. And the brothers came and fell down before Joseph. And Joseph said to them, do not, verse 19, be afraid, for I, am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I want to revisit for a few moments the three quick observations we began at the beginning with. Observation number one, Joseph forgave even before his brothers asked for forgiveness. See, men and women, when we forgive, we choose not to hold a grudge. We choose not to build or live in a spite house. Archibald Hart said this, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. And when it came to emotional cancer, Joseph said, no thanks. Now, when someone has mistreated you and we 
think about forgiving them, one of the questions that comes to our mind is, what about justice? I mean, are they going to get away with their evil actions? In the New Testament, Romans 12, 19 gives us good perspective here. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a promise from God. And we need to leave revenge to the God of the universe who specializes in justice. You see, forgiveness doesn't mean that we eliminate justice. It just means that we entrust it to God. Second principle, forgiveness granted does not mean that trust is restored. See, trust needs to be rebuilt. It needs to be proven over time. And when we are mistreated, and we choose not to hold a grudge, we're also cautious about trusting another person again until they are proven. Joseph did not have resentment towards his brothers, but he still tested his brothers so that they could demonstrate that he had earned his trust. Third principle, forgiveness frees us to be used by God in surprising ways. You ever think about it? What would have happened if Joseph just left his family to die down there in Canaan? What what if he would have executed his brothers? He had the power to do that the moment they showed up. Well, if he had done that, if he hadn't forgiven his brothers, he never would have been the savior of Israel, which is the surprising thing that God brought in his life because of his forgiveness. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. Forgiveness frees us to be used by God in surprising ways. I want to close by sharing with you the story of Christine Kane. Max Lucado does a great job of so eloquently describing her story. He says of Christine Kane, she is an Australian spark plug, five feet, three inches of energy, passion, and love. To sit down with Christine is to share a meal with a modern-day Joseph. She is at war with one of the greatest calamities of our generation, sex slavery. She travels 300 days a year. She meets with cabinets, presidents, and parliaments. She stares down pimps and defies organized crime. With God as her helper, she will see sex slavery brought to its knees. Pretty impressive for a girl whose world was turned upside down. At the age of 30, she stumbled upon the stunning news of her adoption. The couple who raised her never intended for her to know. When Christine happened upon the truth, she sought to track down her biological parents. The official records of her birth told her this much. She was born to a Greek mother. The box designated father's name bore the word unknown. Christine recounts how she lingered over this word, trying to understand how someone so important to her could be reduced to simply this, seven letters, one word, and that single word seemed so inadequate. But there was more. Next to the box marked child's name was another seven-letter word. It sucked the air out of her, unnamed. Father unknown, child unnamed, According to the document, Christine Kane was simply this, birth number 2,508 of the year of 1966. Abandoned by those who conceived and bore you, could anything be worse? 
Actually, yes. To be sexually abused by members of your adopted family. Time and time again, they took sexual advantage of her. They turned her childhood into a horror story of one encounter after another, 12 years of unbridled and ugly evil. Yet, what they intended for evil, God used for good. Christine chose to not heed the hurts of her past, but the promise of her heavenly father. She laid hold of Isaiah 49.1. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And Christine made a Joseph-like decision to forgive and to believe in the God who believed in her. And years later, when she heard of the plight of the girls caught in the sex trade, she knew she had to respond. When she saw their faces on missing person posters and heard of the abuse at the hands of their captors, something she could identify with, this unnamed abused girl set out to rescue the nameless and abused girls of her day. Satan's plan to destroy her actually emboldened her resolved to help other people. And her A21 mission has offices now around the world. They combat human trafficking. They establish prevention programs in schools and orphanages. They represent victims as legal advocates, and they give them refuge in safe houses, then restoration in transition homes. And as of now, several hundred young women have been assisted and released from the sex trade. Christine refused to build and live in a spite house. She chose to forgive and trust God to deal with the justice and therefore was free to be used by God in a surprising way. The freedom of forgiveness, men and women, will keep us from building a spite house. And if we're currently living in a spite house, if you maybe you're right there today, it's time to move out, it's time to forgive, It's time to trust God to deal with the justice. It's time to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness because when you do that, you're free to be used by God in surprising ways. Now, I have taken us very late today. So I'm actually going to dismiss us. Sorry, worship team. Thank you for being here. I do want to say this, though. I'm going to pray very quickly and we'll be dismissed. Don't forget our picnic today from 5 to 7 p.m., Lions Park. All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for just the tremendous story of Joseph and for the freedom of forgiveness. We need to remember the lessons we learned from him. And Father, we thank you that you're so much bigger, you're so much better, you're so much greater than we are. And we just rest in you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.